This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today we have as our guest, Andy Fry, who has written for Rolling Stone, ESPN, and currently interviews pro athletes and sports legends for Forbes. He recently published his first novel, 90 Days in the 90s, a plot-driven fiction time travel story that encompasses music, pop culture, and contemporary history. And I'm Mary Elkins. Andy has interviewed scores of rock stars and athletes from Smashing Pumpkins to Shaquille O'Neal. And he's a music and pop culture fanatic who loves punk, punk rock, grunge, and alternative music, as well as contemporary history, sports, and more. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. We'd love to hear about your background a little to hear how you came to be this accomplished journalist. Were there mentors along the way that steered you toward this? Uh, no, there's probably a lot of friends who are encouraging, but I never, I didn't go to journalism school and I didn't take any writing courses that I remember in college. And it was sort of organic. And, you know, we live in the gig economy now. So I think it's sort of been, it's, it's, we've grown into a world where it's kind of hospital to how I do what I do. And, um, started out as a freelance sports writer, just you know, back about uh, about twelve years or so ago, just kind of blogging about sports to keep myself sane while I was working in the corporate sector, and had some friends say, "Hey, you know, you should probably consider writing professionally." Not really knowing what that meant, and you know, pitched a couple articles here and there, and eventually got my first uh, piece in Rolling Stone in January. Rolling or no, sorry, not Rolling Stone, ESPN.com uh, in the summer of 2011, and I just kind of. Hopped around after that, just, you know, pitching articles. And then I had um, a couple of stints with a couple of different publications and, you know, rolled it all up to deciding to write a book about five years ago. Wow. And all of this was while you're doing corporate job? Yeah, I, worked, I was in sales uh, for a decade and, and, and account management and a lot of like corporate handholding for basically 20 years of my life. So when you're used to asking people for money or... I work with traders a lot. And um, so what happened in the trade in Chicago, you know, there's a Chicago Board of Trade and there's uh, kind of a, a, a time where it went from just, you know, the guys in the pit with the jackets who waved their hands around to everything went ele electronic. So when you have to, when you're selling things, you have to ask people for money or you have to tell a trader that they lost, that they did lose the $10,000 that they want to claim that they didn't, they didn't lose because the computer did it. You really have no fear about pitching an editor who might say no or not. Uh, <laughs> So yeah. I used a lot of that. Um, it's funny. You know, one of my la one of my, my managers or my former managers when I was in financial services, uh, it was a guy named Manny Mezco, and now he's like a CEO of his own um, financial practice. He moved back up to to Michigan, and I was on his podcast. We're talking about like, like kind of the soft the soft skills you use in life at being in 
you know, sink or swim sales that if you take them outside the business world, how instrumental they can be just in terms of helping you communicate with better with people and all the little stuff like following up and like writing a thank you note and, you know, all those things that we think that don't matter to being a, a writer really helped me to get a lot of the opportunities that I, I got. So I can elaborate on that, but I mean, I, I do it because I love the writing. I love talking to uh, athletes and retired sports legends and I love music and kind of wrote about that a little bit, um, you know, aging rock stars and talking about, with them about their sports hankerings and sort of it all rolled up into mm. an idea for a book that, you know, I just published this. this uh, well, I, we want to hear about your book, but I'm, I'm interested in the uh, intersection between sports and music and why sports and music are so important in American culture. I don't, I think that they're just relatable things and every, there's so much variety out there that, um, that, you know, I guess, you know, people in the, in the West and in America need to be entertained or we're just, yeah, I don't know. Think about like, I'm not much of a historian, but you know, we don't have to travel across the seas on a boat anymore and, uh, you know, hunt and kill our food. So we got a lot more time, I, I suppose, as modern beings to, to, you know, do creative pursuits and think about how we spend our time and how we endure our, our time with family. So I don't know. I think um, you know, sports is really like on a professional basis has been around really the last hundred years or so. When you look at it, um, I mean, there has been professional football for uh, over, I guess, a hundred years, but I think they actually, I want to say back in the 1920s or thirties was when athletes started wearing numbers on the back of their jerseys and, and, you know, the, what we think of as the identity of modern sports where, you know, we have a favorite athlete like Shaq, you can go buy his third number 32 Jersey, you know, probably in the Lakers shop right now, even though he's been retired for a decade, that there's just something that we associate with these people that we see uh, on stage and on TV. And for some people it's, it's athletes for some it's uh, rock stars and movie stars. And for some of us, it's, it's, you know, we, we take a liking to it all. So I don't know what the uh, true sociological reason for it is, but I think that we just, you know, we want to occupy ourselves and we're social beings. So we, we latch on to what we see on the screens and try to make it more our own. Mm -hmm. Well, sports and music are important in every culture from what I've seen worldwide. Yeah. When you think that they say the Beatles helped bring down the Berlin Wall and then, of course, soccer is popular throughout the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, I read something a long time. So I'm a, I'm a big uh, English Premier League soccer fan. I read some, an article years ago. I thought about maybe writing a book about this, that someone had, some sociologists had, had posited that the only place back in the 80s, the only place that, it, it, that the, in the Soviet Union where there's, there was free speech was in the soccer stadium. You could actually like supposedly, according to the sociologists who interviewed soccer fans who had defected, that they said, yeah, you could you could slag off the the, the premier of Soviet Union in 1960 or 1970 in a soccer stadium. It was kind of like what happens in the stadium stays in the stadium, which I wow. can't account for that. I thought that was fascinating that, you know, you can't talk to somebody, you can't assemble in the street in the middle of Moscow, but if you shoot your mouth off in a football stadium and, you know, Mos Moscow or some other major city, you know, that was a little different. It was treated differently. So yeah. I'm fascinated by all those social aspects of sports and, you know, there's so much more than just passing a ball around and scoring touchdowns, I think. That's wow. amazing. Yeah. And uh, since your book takes place in the 90s, what's mm -hmm. so special about the 90s? Was music better then? I, I mean, I think it's one of the decades in which a lot of great, I mean, you probably look at any of the last four or five, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, primarily, maybe some of the, two th the early 2000s. And 
there's a lot of new music, a lot of variety. I, I was in my 20s then, so maybe some of it's nostalgia. And I do deal with nostalgia as a theme in the book and kind of make fun of it in a way. But um, yeah, I think, well, and some of it was, so I grew up in the 80s and went to high school in the 80s. And I was a graduate of high school in 1990. And that was kind of like right in the middle of it. I went to college. So the musical landscape was such that pop radio is playing, you know, very you know, kind of like, you know, the big hair that we think of and the pizzazz. And we went from pop to all of a sudden rock and the, you know, not, nothing against Whitney Houston, but, you know, there, there's definitely a different, there was a different format to recording and producing a Whitney Houston album in 1998 than Nirvana in 1992. Like, you know, mm -hmm. the, the amount of producers in the studio, maybe the amount of engineering that went into the sound was much more stripped down in the 90s. And I think people appreciated seeing people who would write their own songs, play guitars, play instruments, play multiple instruments and not just be a, you know, kind of a glossy singer songwriter in front of a microphone dancing around or even at concerts sort of lip syncing or singing over a tape, you know, but that actually was a thing in the late 80s. And there's a flick of the, the switch musically and the record companies had less influence and the artists had more influence at least for a while. And I think that was kind of fascinating. That's I think why we saw so many different types of music. Like if the nineties didn't happen, there'd probably be Snoop Dogg. There would be rap, but I'm not sure that without all the different varieties of music that we would have our ear trained to let him do the things that he does, like kind of mumble on some of his, you know, later <laughs> records or, you know, talking about Long Beach and it, I think music wasn't really wired for the diversity that came uh, eventually until, until the nineties happened. And, you know, I can, I can talk about, I suppose the causes of why that happened, but I think there's a couple of, you know, there's a, a tipping point and some trigger moments and some artists that really kind of pushed it into a different direction. And I think that's fascinating about the nineties. Like who? Well, so in the late eighties, you know, for as much as I might complain about radio pop, there were, Artists like The Cure, you know, think about Robert Smith with his hair all over the place, kind of looking at the floor, being a showman on stage, but also kind of like very shy. Like being shy would not cut it in the 70s and 80s if you were going to be a, a rock star. And I just think that the music spoke more for the band than anything else. And I'm not a huge, I'm not a, a Cure super fan, but they sort of changed music. And so did the, the Pixies, uh, came out of Boston and they kind of swirled around the college scene for a while, but then started appearing on major radio and you had, you know, Bjork who was in the sugar cubes, a band from Iceland, how they ended up on the radio in 1989. I don't know, but there, there was just a, some artists that had a little bit of pop and a little pizzazz, but were doing different things musically. You know, if we were to study their music, like a music scientist, that their sound was very much different and there was a lot of innovation and then in the background, punk ch kept chugging along from the 70s to the 90s. And, you know, a couple of things just just happened. And I think maybe uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly what it was, but it just there seemed to like a tidal wave that was slowly building up and then spilled over. Um, probably when Nirvana's uh, first major label album came out. Well, what about rock and roll? Is rock and roll dead? I don't think so. I mean, for as much as the aging rock stars like to complain about it, they're still around. Yeah, there's some still around. I mean, Joan still Jett's around still, doing it. Joan Jett's still around, and you know, um, 
uh, some of the, you know, I, I went to see, I, I go to see bands now with my son who's 16. And so I, I took him to see a band called Dinosaur Jr. Who is, you know, they've been around since the late eighties and early nineties. And it was a lot of people who are my age with a lot of people, you know, sons and daughters who are his age. And That's fun. there were no uh, dubstep loving millennials checking their phones the whole time. So I think <laughs> Generation Z is a lot more like Generation X in terms of our musical taste, but I think they're a lot more curious than the millennials were. And I, you know, I can make I make fun of it sometimes in my book that Generation X, of, of which I'm a part, I just turned fifty. We have this thing about we have overly heavy concern about being authentic, um, whereas I think millennials, I'm not a sociologist, kind of more focused on like what's trending and you know, if we want to poke fun on what's on fleek, you know, what, what, what's everybody else doing? And <laughs> I think the Gen Z looks at both of us and says, you know, we're just interested in good music. And um, that's what I see for my 16 year old son. I do live in the city. I mean, I don't live out in, you know, a, a big mega suburb. So maybe my perception's different, but yeah. I think with each generation, they, they spawn their own uh, taste in music that, you know, catches on, but you know, we've got Tribe Called Quest and Millennials have um, a former uh, Disney Channel Canadian uh, guy named Drake, who's like their biggest rapper. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll take uh, Tribe Called Quest and Snoop and Public Enemy over Drake any day. But you know, <laughs> We yeah. won't tell him that unless he's listening. Yeah, he doesn't know who I am and I don't follow him on that. <laughs> he follow me on Twitter because I'm not that important. So, Yeah. Well, who would you say is, was your best athlete? Or celebrity interview and why? Well, so I'll probably stick stick. I mean, there's probably like 25 of them, but of the ones that you would definitely know, like Shaquille O'Neal was was super cool. I got to talk to him twice. Um, one byproduct, as you know, of the pandemic was that everybody uses Zoom now. Whereas prior to the pandemic, I, most of the time I was lucky to get someone on the phone for 15 minutes, and then you know a year ago I'm doing a, a Zoom with Shaquille O'Neal like you are with me now. So that uh -huh. was kind of trippy and kind of weird. Like it was, it wasn't weird, but I'm thinking I'm on a Zoom call with Shaquille O'Neal and he's in his house and you see like, it looks like he was upstairs in his house and you see like racks and racks of wine. Like he used, he used in his, his upstairs wine cellar in his house. But we talked about a project he was working on uh, at the time. It was, um, so I write for Forbes and a lot of the angles are like sports and business where sports business come together. So a lot of times it's like, Lindsey Vaughn and what she's doing with this, you know, this company that she's working with, or I got to interview Tom Brady at the beginning of the year when he launched his apparel brand. So at Shaq, it was um, a year ago, I think when I talked to him, he was doing something where, uh, so he's played in six cities and you know, he played in LA, Phoenix, Boston, um, and a couple others and, and was working with Kellogg's to basically put in new playgrounds, basketball playgrounds, so that you know, kids in, in the inner city would have nice facilities and kind of a place to hang out. So he was going around the country at the time, kind of unveiling those. And so we talked about that. And I, of course, I wanted to ask him, like, so I'm talking about, you know, you asked me, is rock and roll still here? I asked him, is the big man still a factor in, in the NBA? Or uh -huh. is, it all, is it all about three pointers and these little guys who score, you know, 40 points? And he, his point of view was, yeah, the big man is back is what he said. So, mm, I have to interject. When yeah. he played for the L.A. Lakers, he was my next-door neighbor. Yeah. So I lived next door to Shaq for a number of years. And we moved in after he did, but we overlapped most of his Laker career. And I was raising a daughter who was a basketball player. Mm -hmm. And he was so nice to her. And when the yeah. kids would come 
over to the house, her team, we'd come from a game that he'd always pose for a picture. And here would be all these little girls, like up to his waist, and this <laughs> giant guy. And he was always really, really sweet to them. Yeah, I just did a Q&A with his sons about two weeks ago because they are doing, uh, I think they're doing a, a kind of a brand launch with one of the, with I think with Adidas, I can't remember now, with Adidas or one of the brands where they're kind of, you know, they're, obviously it's hard to be hard to live up to your father when your father's Shaquille and yield but they're involved in basketball. And we talked about, you know, kind of how sports and hip hop cultures affected the sneakers on our feet, which, you know, when I was growing up, it was yeah. Converse and Jordans were new. And, you know, now there was a while, there was a while, I guess in the late nineties where it was kind of like the, the B plus players were getting shoe deals and have their own shoes. And I think we got away, got away from that. But um, at the same time, you just see more, athletes sort of taking equity and an ownership stake in uh the projects that they do in the companies they, they work for it's not just go be in a commercial make twenty five thousand dollars and then you're done like they want to be part of something they, they want they want stock they want some so i think his son's uh you know he's shaq's an entrepreneur and he's got you know as you probably know mm-hmm. he's got like i don't know 30 papa john's and he owns some gyms he's, he's an investor in ring the doorbell company he's got a bunch of tech stuff that he is involved in and i think his sons are taken after him in that realm and they understand that you know you want to be in business you want to you want to own something not just hawk your name or you know be a, a paid endorser so that that's kind of a cool dynamic to see but yeah he was great he was super nice you know it's weird when somebody's mega famous says your name when they're answering your question that's kind of um you know uh-huh. like, i got i've gotten over it but that's that was kind of bizarre at first when that start first started happening when i, I was well, interviewing He's went, quite the humanitarian. So you mentioned earlier about going from the finance area to writer writing, but what happened in your inside you that made you move, make the move? Well, I I guess you know I think people are, I was probably always a writer, I just one without focus. So like my first ever sports <laughs> article, so to speak, was in fourth grade. Uh, I remember this was probably winter of nineteen eighty one. It, it snowed a whole bunch, so we were indoor recess for like two months and somehow this wave of chess became popular among mostly the boys but some girls played too when i was in fourth grade so i remember writing an article about the sports you know the basically the or sports article the the chess craze huh. in fourth grade at blair mill elementary you know wow fourth and, grade yeah i kind of just did that a couple of times throughout high school and college i wasn't particularly focused as a student and i think i liked writing but i didn't you know i think technology does help in that you, know, you sit in front of a computer, it's different than writing in a like a note a notebook or a, a journal or something like that. So um it kind of took me a long long time to come to it, but I think in probably the between 2005 and 2010, being in financial sales, there's ups and downs and there's times when you you know you can't get anything done, whether it's fighting with underwriters or just like customers and clients won't buy because of the economy or because it's August and nobody does business in August. There's a lot of that. So I think just to kind of keep myself sane, I started blogging about sports just as these rants and things I thought were interesting that like eight of my friends back home would read and I would post. And I just kind of stuck with that. And as a hobby, you know, I thought it would, I thought, I guess I thought I, I could write more than just a hobbyist. And I made a goal probably in about 2010 to just kind of like see how I get, I'll see if I get something published in the next five years, you know, local paper, if I do guest column for the Tribune here in Chicago, whatever it is, you know, that was a goal. And I pretty much blew through that in about 18 months when, you know, thanks to some connections I made and some questions I asked, 
I got to an editor at what was called Page Two that um, was a, a vertical over at ESPN.com that uh, was kind of like, you know, uh, quirky, weird, extreme sports and kind of offbeat sports stories and not like covering baseball, football scores and play by play. So it was kind of a playground for um, freelance writers who had an interesting sports angle. And I, I just kept pushing it until I got a piece in there. And then, you know, once you have, once you say you, you've written for ESPN, you've written for ESPN and you can kind of, uh, you don't, I didn't pitch myself as like anybody special, but when I, when I heard that there was an opening, the next, very next gig, so I wrote this article about this sport called fistball, which is kind of a variant of um, uh, volleyball. It's kind of weird in that there's no net, but without boring you about the, the sports nuts and bolts of it. Uh, it's played in Scandinavia and Germany and Brazil. And then there's this ragtag world cup team in the U S who just happened to be in Wisconsin. So I went up to Wisconsin. Uh, the story was kind of quirky in that I'm, I'm in, I think I'm interviewing the captain of the team who's smoking a cigarette at halftime. So it's kind <laughs> oh, of far as sports go, uh, shot some video, made it look really official. Got my first piece in there. It was like 387 words. And I think I got paid 125 bucks. Whoa. Uh, but you know, when I, when I heard that, um, someone who was managing the, uh, the basically the color, sorry, the ESPN Chicago had uh, a prep school blog for a while. So looking for writers to cover the high school games. Um, so I emailed a guy named Scotty powers and I said, Hey, I've written once for ESPN. And he's like, I can get you a game next week. It wasn't like, well, give me your resume and I need some references and we got to get your credit. He's like, can you do, uh, you mind doing Southside Catholic league? And I was like, sure, I'll do whatever. So, uh, huh. On my BlackBerry, I would I would write uh, an article, you know, right after the last whistle in my car, probably before I left the parking lot, <laughs> and would email it to my editor, and maybe do by the time I got home, do a, do an edit, and it would get posted at eleven thirty, and then you know the next morning I'd tell my friends I wrote for ESPN again. But it was a lot of a lot of that, a lot of just kind of like looking for what else was out there, pitching things, not getting discouraged when they said no. And I never had the attitude like I only want to write about the NFL or I only want to write about pro sports. Like if if you wanted me to write about, you know, I don't know, pro dog wrestling or something, I would have written about <laughs> oh. it. <laughs> I joke with my dog. My dog's sleeping in the next room. I joke with him sometimes like, hey, Brody, do you want to start a, like a human uh, dog uh, pro wrestling league? Cross cross species pro wrestling league would be fun. But he's, <laughs> he's too nice of a dog to, to body slam me. But yeah. Um, yeah. For a while, it was just kind of weird stories. And I, I, I guess eventually publishers started seeing my my stuff and I got, you know, some other quirky sports stories. But one of them was probably the first professional athlete that I interviewed was Matt Forte when he was with Chicago Bears, uh, probably about 2014, maybe 2013. And the angle there was he was um, Matt Forte is kind of a quiet guy, but he was involved in a web comedy series called Tough Season. So the, the plot is, imagine you and Tom Brady and a bunch of famous, you know, a bunch of sports, uh, but athletes, you're all in a fantasy football league together and you're super competitive, you know? So that was what it was about. It was about these, like these two comedy guys who did the sports thing. And Matt, Matt Forte was kind of like the guy with the quiet zinger at the end of the episode. Like he wasn't, he's not super talkative, but I got to interview him about that. And the fact that he was a, you know, like a legit professional athlete. I think, you know, eventually publishers started seeing that and I, they'd started emailing me and I got ideas to write about and that gave me more things to pitch. And I've been doing that ever since. So it's just kind of a process and you, know, you got to kind of put your shingle out there and, and show people what you can do. And then eventually there's an interest. Well, I hope all the writers out there listen are listening. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the way to do it. It's a lot of foundation building. And don't, and and, don't burn bridges either. That That's, you know, don't mm-hmm. get yeah. no, doesn't mean you should burn bridges or be angry. send people an angry email because that doesn't help you out. No. And tell us a little bit about your novel, 90 Days in the 90s. Where did you get the idea to write time travel fiction? And what was your writing process like? Yeah, I'm not a science uh, science fiction person, sci-fi geek. I, I So that was probably the one struggle. But I think about five years ago, Easter five years ago, I was vacationing up in Traverse City, Michigan at a friend's house. And um, the family we stayed with, like it was a Friday. Everybody went out to do fun stuff. I was tapping away on my computer and just took a break and went for a walk. And I was listening to a bunch of 90s playlists I had on Spotify because I'm big into music. And it's probably the app on my phone I use the most. So I remember just um, kind of revisiting this idea that always bounced around my head. Like, wouldn't it be great to go back in time to see this concert? I remember this show or I didn't get to see James Brown before he died. So what it would be like to go back and see him at the Apollo in, I don't know, 1971. So I had that idea. And I think what some writers do is we we get ideas all the time. You sort of hear about the, you know, you're writing down the sort of the golden ticket idea on a bar napkin. Or you wake up in the middle of the night and write something Mm -hmm. down, you know, like... um, Supposedly, Keith Richards was drunk and wrote the first lyrics to um, Satisfaction, Can't Get No Satisfaction, then fell asleep and woke up and it was on a page and he didn't remember. <laughs> like the most famous rock song ever. So some of that happened, <laughs> but I just took some notes and I thought it was a cool idea and I had to decide. I think I said to myself, like, if I care about this idea in two, three weeks, you know, I want to write it. If I'm excited about it in three weeks as I am now, then I'll, let me, I'll see if I can write this thing. And eventually I kept thinking about it. I was excited about the idea of time travel back to the 1990s. What would that mean? You know, there was a music piece of it. And then when I started writing, you know, you kind of say, oh, crap, like I got to if I'm writing a book, I got to come up with 70 to 100,000 words. What, how do I do that? And you just yeah. planning and kind of brain dumping ideas. And then, yeah, it was just a process. But over the five years, I've said this a couple of times recently, um, I kind of created this alternate space in the 90s with these characters that I wanted to hang out with so that when I would sit and write for two and three hours a day, it became easy. And I just was kind of going to my little fun space and kept kept writing and kept writing and kept you make discoveries is what I guess to use a kind of a comedy theater term. Uh, and you come up with scenes and yeah, just kind of like um, after I'd written the first couple drafts, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I changed some things around at, at the suggestion of a literary agent friend of mine hired an editor who kind of went through it. And then I just kind of kept refining it. And um, yeah, I decided to seek out a, a small publisher about this time last year. And we got it finished June one and I've been promoting it ever since. I started it a little bit and it has, it's a little reminiscent of high fidelity in a yeah. way. Yeah. I, I love, I love the vibe. You're yeah, creating. I, think, well, I love um, Nick Hornby books. I, I actually really like Fever Pitch even more than High Fidelity. Fever Pitch is about um, a teacher who is obsessed with soccer. And so the each chapter starts instead of like June 1st, 1992. It's like a, a title of a match. Like he's a, he's a huge Arsenal fan. So it's like Arsenal versus Newcastle on the date. And he sees his life through the football match of the week. Like, so it was kind of like a, you know, a boy who didn't grow up who also sublimated sublimated his family problems of his dad leaving and all this stuff through soccer. But he has a unique way of writing. Um, 
So I didn't, you know, I actually like, I think I lent my copy of High Fidelity to somebody because I didn't want to make sure I wasn't copying him or copying like a lot of writers that I like. But I think the the writers that I'm drawn to are very, they, the dialogue is very relatable and conversational. And uh, there's not, I had to get, I was encouraged by the editor I hired to stop explaining things and start demonstrating in scenes. And that's where you come up with dialogue that either works or doesn't. And then you kind of learn how to like name drop a band and name drop this event and mention, you know, that the Clinton impeachment hearings are going on or or that it was election 96 or a lot of things that rather than explain it's 1996 and the election's going on and here's what's on TV. Like I got to kind of just throw that in conversation uh, the way that I think we normally would sort of build, rebuild mm-hmm. the context all the time. And that was um, that kind of felt like it came easy once I put myself in the place of I'm just hanging out with these characters in the 90s and you know, like my main character, Darby, she's trying to figure out what she's doing. She kind of goes back to the past to fix some things and maybe revisit with, um, you know, a significant other. And it doesn't go that the way that she plans, but then she gets caught up in her twenties and the music scene and having a great time in the nineties and kind of not dealing Uh. with her stuff. So, so yeah, I guess there's that aspect to it. That's, um, like high fidelity, but there's some other authors that I took some notes from just sort of from my reading and, I think you you have to be coachable when you're writing a book, both to your editor, but also to kind of get a sense for what people want to read and really what works in, in the written word and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. I'd I'd love to know what other authors that you, you really enjoy, but I also would like yeah. to know, I have like a threefold question here. Um, you, you had mentioned uh, earlier that um, about when you, with 90 days in the 90s a lot of bands that you would have loved to have hung out with i'd love to know what those bands would be and Mm -hmm. and also what bands have you most enjoyed writing about yeah you know so i did i never saw smashing pumpkins until a year ago um in chicago we have this fest called riot fest every september and um so for my kids 15th birthday i got uh, last summer i got tickets to see guns and roses at wrigley field and the oh. tickets were kind of expensive, but somehow my son was kind of persuasive. And he said, you know, Smashing Pumpkins at Riot Fest, we haven't gone in a couple of years. Because I think I took him when he was 12. He's like, we, we should go see Smashing Pumpkins. Like, we should go to that. And so I was like, okay, fine. We'll go Friday. We'll buy the, the day pass for Friday. And um, yeah, I'd never seen him before. Um, I'd interviewed Billy Corgan twice, actually, for ESPN when he was doing his wrestling league, his pro wrestling league back in about, about 10 years ago now. But I'd never seen them. So I feel I felt like I, I kind of missed out a little bit when they were not stadium bound. But I, it was great to see them, you know, kind of come back together. And they just they sound as they sound you know better than ever. I'll put it that way. Um, but one of the ones that I, I didn't see was uh, James Brown. I want to say that I think in New Year's Day, 1996, the House of Blues opened here or it was that week. It was the beginning of the year. And the first act was James Brown. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't you couldn't get tickets unless you knew somebody you you know you were uh, re- really yeah. paid a pony up twelve hundred bucks or whatever. So I never got to see James Brown, and that's you know it's not alternative music, but he's just a titan. <laughs> I would love to see him just do the James Brown thing on stage, and <laughs> that would have been great. So, but yeah, there's probably like fifty bands that I've seen that I could talk about. There's probably fifty that I never saw that I would love to. Just depends on how deep cut you want to get and how much time <laughs> you have, I suppose. <laughs> What bands have you most enjoyed writing about? So, you know, the, the thing is, like, uh, it, most of it was for ESPN, and I was writing about, I was kind of contacting um, aging 
you know, artists like Morrissey from the Smiths, who was on a, he had a, I guess he was starting a tour in 2013. And I just kind of lucked out and got his press agent. And I got to do an email interview with him because he doesn't really talk to anybody. Um, I love the band Oasis. So I got to, um, when I got, when I got to interview Noel Gallagher, who's the, you know, guitar, guitarist, main songwriter, talk to him on the phone about sports. That was great. <laughs> but, um, you know, I talked to a, a country singer named Gary Allen and in that stretch too. And I don't really follow country, but we talked about like wakeboarding and some of his outdoor things that he does. And he, he told me like he loves football, but he just has a moral issue with sitting in the house on Sunday for three and a half hours to watch one game. And I get that because I don't want to watch football all, all Sunday either. I just, I have too many things to do. And uh-huh. uh, you can always like... record and speed through it. Yeah, but I don't like football that much. It's just, I feel like it's too time consuming and we all have things that we we prefer. And I just don't want to spend half my day watching the NFL. So I totally got with him on that. And he basically said, I'd rather be out of my boat, you know, fishing or wakeboarding than sitting inside, especially, you know, I guess he lives in Tennessee. It's a little, little warmer in Tennessee than it than it is in Chicago in October. So, you know. Yeah. yeah oh, just, yeah. So I didn't know anything about his music before that, but he was great to talk to. And, and that's part of what happens when you get to interview people. Um, to give you another example, I'm a, you see Wrigley Field, the, the sign behind me. I'm in Chicago. I'm a diehard Cubs fan, but... One of my best um, interviews with was with Adam Wainwright, who's a pitcher for the Cardinals. He's played his whole career there. Um, I have nothing in common with the guy, but we talked about <laughs> baseball, and you know, and he told me some stories about John Hamm texting him when he pitches against the Cubs and wishing him luck, and you know, trash talking about the Cubs, and you know, that was a <laughs> great interview, a great conversation I had with this guy for half an hour that you know support different teams and. I mean, I kind of rooted against Shaq, too, in the 90s. Oh. Uh, he's always beating my team, but it didn't make him any <laughs> interesting to talk to. So I think you just find common ground, and it doesn't matter if it's – I'm sure I could – if I interviewed Yo-Yo Ma, I could probably find oh. something to talk to about him. Yeah, That's wonderful. Yeah. And what would you say are your top five desert island discs if you're on a desert island? Uh, oh, that's hard because the answer answer changes daily, but oh, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, so the first Stone Roses album, which is called the Stone Roses, they're a band from Manchester that was supposed to be the biggest in the world. Um, they had a great first album, they just were kind of lazy and didn't keep it together, so and fought with the record company. So the Stone Roses have won probably the first Oasis album. I like the first Police album, actually. Yeah, Outlandos, it's uh-huh. kind of more upbeat. Uh, I guess I'll have to pick a Led Zeppelin album, so I'll pick the double album, Physical Graffiti. And uh, I don't know, you know, probably the fifth one. I feel like I should pick pick a female artist, so I'll, I'll probably, I love The Runaways. I love Joan Jett anyway on, on her own, but I think the, the Runaways are a really underrated 70s band. And you know, Lita Ford could do things on guitar before all those metal gods came in the 80s. So I'll say Queen, the Queen's of Noise, the... I think the second album by the Runaways. Mm. Yeah, that's quite a list. Ask me again tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll send you a text and oh. we'll add it. Um, so, well, who's your favorite sports legend and why? You've been talking about Shaq, but are there others? I grew up in the Philadelphia area, so um, Julie Serving, Doctor J, was probably it because he was a great player. He's a gentleman, and I got to interview him. 
back in 2018. I was supposed to meet him in person. And at the time he was uh, coaching for Ice Cube's three-on-three basketball league called Big Three. And Big Three would have a game every weekend and be in a different city. So he was booked to come to Chicago. And I think I was going to meet him at like the Swiss Hotel. But his flight, I think his flight got messed up because of weather. And then they just told me first thing in the morning, don't come downtown because he's not going to be there. His flight's delayed. We're going to move the the interview on the, to the phone in the afternoon. So I was a little bummed about that. But I got to talk to him about, you know, his team that I followed as a kid and what's it like playing tough guys in the N- NBA and just sort of like just to talk to him just like a regular person. So he was great. Uh, my favorite sports um, media personality was Dick Schapp. I always loved Dick Schapp because he was down to earth. He was never a jerk to anybody. Like he just didn't have an ego and he was very conversational with anybody. So um, I thought he was the best. And uh, he and David Faherty both, I just, they have a comfort level with, with the world's biggest athletes that they just kind of talk to them like regular people. And I think probably too often in media, somebody's trying to get the scoop or they want to stick a mic in somebody's face and get the big, the big story or the, you know, just breaking news or whatever. And I don't think you need to do that to have your interview or the content of, you know, the program be interesting. I'd rather, I'd rather talk to, you know, someone like Shaquille O'Neal or Tom Brady about, you know, what board games do they play with their kids at home? Or like, you know, what do you do when you're, what, so, what song do you play air guitar to? And when, when you know, the windows are shut in your car, like, I just want to know about those things. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the time that you missed the basket and this important game. And, you know, I just, I thought Dick Schapp was the greatest at disarming people. And he's just as important as any professional athlete I've been ever, ever interviewed myself. You know, That's Kathy great. and I were asking ourselves before, um, we began our talk, what we would do if we could time travel back to the 90s. Mm-hmm. So is there anything special you'd like to say or tell our listeners and to have as a takeaway today? Uh, well, I mean, if, if people are interested in my book, you don't have to be like a diehard alternative rock fan or grunge fan to enjoy it. I, I think I worked on it long enough and with, with a good enough good people that I think anybody who likes pop culture at all um, can, can relate to it and would like it. And I, I think the chapter, like I hate books that all the chapters are 40 pages. Like I want that, like a seven, eight page chapter. So I could take <laughs> my breath, take a breath and get my head around what I just read and then proceed. Part of that's because I grew up in a generation where, you know, we watched 22 minutes of TV with commercials in the middle of just kind of digest information differently. But I think it's a good read for anybody. And then also if you have a, uh, you know, the diehard music fan that you got to buy a holiday gift for, you know, 90 days in the 90s is uh, a great book for that. Yeah, know, a, reference, a reference. I'm going to buy gifts for people. So, you know, mm-hmm. I've had a couple of people say, you know, I really love Celine Dion. And, you know, Celine Dion is probably one of two artists in my book that kind of gets lambasted a little bit. So if you really love Celine Dion you're, and, and you don't have a sense of humor, you're not going to like my book, but maybe mm-hmm. – uh, Maybe your your uncle or your your seventeen year old kid, you know, who loves rock and roll might like it. But mm. <laughs> that's my pitch. That. There, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Andy, what's your favorite sport to write about or to interview the people? Well, because interviewing can be a contact sport. No, um, I don't. I, I mean, I love. I follow. I, what I like to watch is, is soccer. Although I've gotten into race car driving a bit. I've, I didn't know anything about NASCAR until a couple of years ago. And so that's one of them. Um, I've got to interview some NASCAR 
drivers, um, some really good ones like Kyle Busch and Chase Elliott who won championships. And then I've interviewed a couple of women who who race in different formats. So um, Haley Deegan is, is I want to say she's probably 20, maybe she's 22 now. She's in the wow. second tier NASCAR. She's like really good. So you're going to be hearing about her, I think, in years to come. And she could be, you know, the first uh, the first female driver to win, you know, and, and win something like the, the Daytona 500 or one of the, the big races. So it's a big deal to win a race in the whole season in NASCAR. Uh, just like it is, it's a big deal if you're a golfer and you only win the Masters or you only win the Fet, you know, you win the, uh, the BMW championship. Like it, they're both really entrepreneurial sports. So I'll say both race car driving and golf, because um, I've learned a bit about the economics of both sports and how entrepreneurial they are. And that, okay, so if you are the number one pick, you played at Alabama, you go in the NBA, you get a contract and you could be a flop in the NF, in the NBA, but you're going to be paid for a while. You're a good up, up and coming race car driver with your own race team. You need to find sponsors to get tires on your car and you need to hustle for that. And I've, I've talked with particularly the, the, the female drivers like, uh, Lindsay Brewer and Haley Deegan and Natalie Decker and that, you know, they're all about the racing, but they know that they've got to, you know, they got to pay the bills. It's not just, you know, I'm good. And a t- team's going to give me a contract. So I'm set now. There's a really an entrepreneurial piece to it that I'm fascinated with. And just the same, same thing with a golfer. It's like, uh, you know, if Lexi Thompson goes down to play in, in the, the ladies PGA championship, and she doesn't make the cut. She doesn't get any money, and she still has to pay her caddy and fly herself back to home, along with her pay for her caddy's airfare and all that stuff. So there's a yeah, it's almost like a, a cutthroat sink or swim mentality. And these people, you know, their sport is they got an event every week they got to do. So I, I'm really fascinated with with both those because strangely, you know, you don't think of race car driving and golf as being similar at all, but they are very similar in the way that the uh the the sports people in those sports have to what what they got to do to coexist and make it to the next week so i would say those two and and just because i'm fascinated with the culture and the economics of both such an interesting interesting point to make about them being entrepreneurial yeah Yeah. i hadn't thought about that yeah i hadn't either and in a way it's like freelance writing which is what you were doing so thank you so much andy this has been really fun and really interesting Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Andy Fry, sports and entertainment writer and interviewer. You can see more on his website, andyfry.com, and check out his new novel, 90 Days in the 90s. It sounds fantastic. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Yes, and we want to remind our listeners to follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and at Late Boomers. We always try to uplift you and inspire you. So drop us a line on our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. Thanks again, Andy. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. 
This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.